0: If you're new here today, if you're a guest with us, welcome to you. Uh, we've been in a series called Breaking the Chains of Family Baggage. We took a couple weeks of, of break just to do a couple of other things, and we want to jump back in this morning. And I want to begin by reading a core passage for us this morning that really set the stage for where we're going even today, Exodus chapter 34, and look how it reads here. The Lord passed before him. Today, we tackle this idea of fathers and, and get a, and a couple aspects of being a little bit more pointed as to how the sins, the iniquity of the dads roll from generation to generation. But I want to introduce it this way. I, a number of years ago, it was a long time ago, I read a book called Dear Dad. And it, the author was named Doug Webster. And Doug Webster interviewed over 1,500 teenagers, and he basically threw out three questions, and I want to put them on the screen here for you, and this is the summary of the book. If I were to describe my dad with a color, he would be a black, orange, red, because, and then they would fill in the blank. Second question If I were to rate my relationship with my dad on a scale of one to 10, mine would be a. And then because they were giving the why question, why they chose that. And the third one if I could say anything to my dad, I would tell him and then fill in the blank. But here's how one young woman answered that last question her dad was a doctor. And this was shared to the author. Look how it reads. I put it on the screen. It's in your notes, sermon notes there. Dad, can we talk, please? I asked you that one day as a freshman. And you said you were busy that day because you had to go to surgery. You never came back to talk to me. Four years later, I've given up waiting for you. And age 18. So here was a father-daughter relationship with the opportunity to actually go deep and it remained on a surface level at best. The sins and the iniquity of the Father sweep over generation to generation. What happens in that process? Now, understand this. This is about fathers in the room today. This is about your father, anybody here, obviously you have a dad, this is about your dads, and if you're not even married, or you're single, or you're younger, this is about what it means to look forward into the future as as well. But to begin with, I need to say this, we live in a fallen world, and because of that, there is no such thing as a perfect father. I'll just remind everybody of that, and I look back and my kids could write about all my flaws But here's the other piece to it. There are distinct challenges that are different between moms and fathers in this process of baggage between the generations. Uh, A couple weeks ago, we dealt with the issue of moms and some of the baggage there. If you want to go online, you can listen to that and you can get caught up on the series. But today, I need to dig into two critical issues that play in deeply to the sins being, ripples, the, the rolling over to one generation to, a, to another. And the goal is, how do we break that? How do we break those cycles? But first, where I want to head is I want to go, turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to really be coming out of this passage And understand the context of Genesis 3 here, verse 16, is that Adam and Eve have ignored the commands of God. They've eaten the fruit. They chose independence and autonomy over bowing, staying under the the rule of their creator. And we come to verse 16, and this is talking about the consequences of that fall. Look at verse 16. To the woman, he said... I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, here's where i got to stop and give some framework that goes a little bit wider here. Because in the, if you were to dig in the first two chapters of Genesis, there is a theology of work that's defined here. See, God created. He said it's good. And remember, even he, he rested from his work on that seventh day. But in that work, in that creation, the creation was a gift to mankind. And men and women were called to exercise dominion over the earth, to rule over creation, and they were called to manage it, take care of it, and in that it included physical work. Now understand this. Work was not burdensome. It was good. It was a gift. But sin comes along. And there are consequences then of that sin, and some of it has to do with the issue of work and the function of that. Now here's where we need to actually catch uh, catch some of the context here even today. If you look closer, understand that Adam's failure was more than just eating the forbidden fruit. I don't know if you caught that in verse 17. I don't have it on the screen, but if you look in your notes there, it makes a statement, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, because you have listened to the voice of Eve. What just happened there? Let me phrase it this way. Adam had failed in his responsibility to lead now, you've got to be careful, because sometimes listening to the voice of your wife is the wisest thing to do. I asked Deanna, and she said, yes, that's true. But in this case, in the garden here, understand the words of Eve contradicted God. And Adam had abandoned his leadership, and he ended up putting his wife's words above God's word. She came first. And there was a result that took place, a consequence that took place. Let me put it on the screen, the result of the first sin. That the Garden of Eden formed the roots where men relinquished their responsibility to take spiritual leadership. But let me give it to you in a more direct way. If you're following along and you know, I call it a tsunami of generational sin here, of a key issue here. And if you're following along, here's what I said. The tsunami sins of a father, one of them is this spiritual passivity. See, God held Adam and holds men accountable for the spiritual tone within their families. Now, I realize something here as well today, that many of you had fathers who did not know Christ. He had no spiritual values. He could not lead spiritually. But here's the truth that I've seen over 25 years of ministry in the church, is that way too many Christian men have Christian fathers who are spiritually passive. And that passivity ripples from generation to generation to generation. And the waves keep coming. So there's far too many men in churches today that are passive in regards to the spiritual tone and the direction within their family. And I think it's one of the weaknesses of the church in the 20th and the 21st century. Men take little responsibility in terms of spiritually training their children, setting a spiritual tone. And the default is, let mom do it. Now, I want to show you an example of this in a text. It shows the example of a father failing to lead. And it's, the guy's name is Eli. It comes out of 1 Samuel chapter 2. Eli was a priest and his two sons were working in the temple with him. But So let me read this. This is his legacy. Fathers and sons' legacy. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Boy, great legacy, isn't it? They did not know the Lord. Verse 17, thus the sins of the young men were very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offerings of the Lord with contempt. Now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your, e- your evil dealings with all these people. No, my sons, it's no good report that I hear the people of the Lord speaking abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? but they would not listen to the voice of their father. They didn't respect Eli at all. But look at verse 29. God responds to Eli. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me? Catch that? By fattening yourselves in the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. If we were to dig into the facts and went there farther and started laying out the totality of this story, what we find is that the priestly sons of Eli are wicked men. They violated a sacred liturgy of some things that they were supposed to do in the temple. They act unjustly toward good people. They they, they have zero respect for their father in the spiritual world. They're sexually promiscuous. And passivity, I would say it this way, passivity is written all over Eli's parenting. And it actually takes too long for Eli to rebuke his sons. I don't know if you realize that he should have removed them from the temple and from the work that they were doing. And then God rebukes Eli for his uh, weak rebuke, and he tells Eli that his weak response showed that Eli favored his sons over God. And the result, God pulls the ministry away from Eli and his sons, and they're done. And his sons are replaced by Samuel, and Eli's sons then would die for their sins, and the family line came to an end. Spiritual passivity within Eli. It's a generational sin that keeps giving. Now, here's the challenge, though, when you look at us in 2017 and men in 2017, is that men are not passive in other areas of their lives. I see so often that fathers are committed to the children's world in terms of sports and activities and committed to the recreational areas of their lives. But in the spiritual realm, there's passivity, Let me ask a question as we dig in this. What was your dad like in that area? Was your dad spiritually passive? Maybe it was non-existent. There was no spiritual roots at all. And I suspect even in this setting here today that there's many of you that had passive dads when it comes to the spiritual world. Now, some of you are actually wishing you had a passive dad. Because some of you grew up in a home where the dad wasn't passive. He was angry. Some of you grew up in a home with a dad who was just emotionally disengaged, could not relate to anybody in the family or the kids. Some of you grew up in homes where the dad was a manipulator. Some of you grew up in homes where dad was emotionally and physically abusive, and a few of you even had dads who were sexually abusing. See, looking back, what was the model that you were modeled? What was your father like in the spiritual world? If I were to describe my dad, my dad was passive spiritually, incredibly passive. I don't remember one spiritual conversation with him. And I grew up in a church exactly like this. But he also had another characteristic. There was a touch, more than a a strong touch of Spiritual legalism that, that he portrayed as well. See, what was your dad like? Let me give you some more examples from Dear Dad. Marcus, age 12. Marcus, my dad is the color black because he's never there for me. My relationship with him is a zero. Why, Marcus? My dad wanted me aborted. Marcus, do you have anything to say to your dad? Go die because you've never been there for any of your children. Here's a young girl, the next one. He is the color black. He's like a black hole, never understanding or there. Our relationship is a one because he didn't want a girl and he disowned me because of it. Here's a 13-year-old, Luke. Thirteen-year-old Luke pictured his dad as red because Luke said he has a temper. He ranks his relationship with his dad as a two because he said to his dad, he calls me stupid and says that I'm idiotic. Now, I was thinking Luke's dad was going to get both barrels when I asked, what would you like to say to your dad, Luke? And he said this, I love you, Dad. What? Really? You know, Luke, you can say anything, anything. I did, he replied. You know, I I look at that last one and I realize something. It takes a long time for a child to learn to hate their father. Even deeply wounded kids and even grown kids who have been wounded by their dads want to love their dads. They want to be able to love them. They want to be able to respect them. But but dad's father's out here. Let me ask you a hard question. No matter what your age, if Doug Webster sat down with your children and began to interview the kids, the children, what color would they pick and why? What would they rate you as a father 1 to 10? If Doug were to ask your child today, is your dad concerned about the spiritual world in your life or is he more concerned about sports and grades and other stuff. What would he say? Now now here's the struggle. My goal is not to beat you up, and this is hard stuff, but I believe there's something true here that very few dads, fathers, have had it demonstrated to them what it means to be a spiritual shepherd to their kids, to their children. Passivity is modeled so easily from generation to generation to generation. But spiritual shepherding is not easily modeled. Again, I can't remember one spiritual conversation with my father. But he didn't beat us. He was gentle. He was a nice guy. Just spiritually passive. But I do know this, he learned his passivity from his dad, and I think from his mother as well. I think it impacted his parents, impacted his ability to speak spiritual things into our lives, the six of us kids that were under their umbrella. But here's the deal, because I know it, I've had some conversations with my mom about I learned about his dad, his mom. I figured some stuff out. But because I know it, I can't hold it against him. I cannot blame him. See, the responsibility to break the chain comes back on me. I have no excuses as a father. So my goal today is for you to stop and go, how did dad impact today men and women we need to ask that question but the challenge is to try to break the cycle for us men here today and the reality is it has to be learned something new has to be learned one has to grow in it one has to develop the skill to actually do it and we need the power of the Holy Spirit working in us to change our lives But there needs to be intentional work to break the cycle and break those chains of that baggage. You know, I don't know of a more critical issue within the church for men and dads to learn that skill and figure out what it means to disciple their sons and their daughters, to move away from spiritual passivity, move away from complacency. But here's what I do know that many men rationalize. And it goes like this, yeah, but I'm serving in the church. I I attend church regularly, and I would say to you, that means very little. That doesn't model a whole lot. Now, here's the other place. When I spoke earlier, that first service, I I realized there's men that are just shutting down right now. You're wanting to block me off. Fear is rising within you. Deep down, you're just hoping that your wife doesn't want to talk to you about the sermon. You're getting angry at me, maybe even right now. But, men, here's what I would say to you if you don't assume the responsibility and the desire to grow in this area spiritually, God will hold you accountable. And if that scares you, I go, it probably should. Spiritual passivity. Generation after generation after generation. But in this text, Genesis 3, there's another issue, and it's linked to spiritual passivity. Let me put up a portion of the text that implies this. Look at verse 18. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall, not, you shall eat bread, till we return to the ground. Realize what's happening now in chapter 3 here. The relationship, the context, the relationship between a wife and a husband has changed. Now, if we went back to verse 16, it says this, that Eve will now be subject to Adam's domination. She will look to control him, but he won't let her, and he will fight it, and he will look to try to dominate back. Now, i got to say this, domination in a marriage, either direction was not part of God's plan. But understand this, Adam's failure to lead set the stage for the struggles between Adam and his wife Eve. But the struggles go beyond relationships. In addition to this, Adam would now struggle with the issue of work and the extra toil because of the curse on the ground. Now, I realize many of you have not grown up on a farm, but because it's wider than just the weeds. See, the consequence is that man's relationship with work changed forever. The nature of work changed, and work becomes actually more important than than less important after the fall it's more important now why because it was cursed man had to work harder to sustain a life to provide for the family more work but there's an there's a dynamic that takes place here i want to put it on the screen for you recognize this that work now becomes an obstacle to man's relationships because he has to work extra hard to provide the sustenance that he needs before sin came in the world understand he was made to work but work was never supposed to get in the way of our relationships But in this life, work is now stained, it's tarnished because of Adam and Eve declaring independence, turning their back on God, and now there's consequences in this this area. I I don't know if we just, we, we so don't catch the depth of that fall. It created alienation between God and people, between husbands and wives, between parents and children and between people and this earth that we're on. Now work becomes an obstacle to relationships. That phrase, by the sweat of your face, maybe you have the sweat of your brow, all of a sudden more is demanded in the work area. Men have to work harder, people have to work harder in work. But here's where we begin to go. Men slide toward a direction that the flesh calls them to. And they begin to focus on their jobs. And they begin to leave the spiritual responsibility of the home and they leave it to mom and the wife. But when trouble comes into the relational world, what's the response of men? Move toward work. Work harder, even at plain. Do you realize men actually work at plain? But let me reframe it in a different way. Work is not evil. It's a gift of God. It was meant for good. But Paul did something that changed, something that is so subtle, and it creates this tidal wave that impacts generation after generation. And let me fill in for your notes here this second wave. Here's what I believe took place, that work replaced relationship as man's primary source of meaning for his life. Relationships were broken. But because relationships are more complex than work, man defaults to work harder to provide so he can survive even emotionally. And he realized what it fuels it fuels the quest for meaning in our lives. And we look to find meaning and purpose in our work. And if we can succeed in our work, we feel good about ourselves, and we work at playing hard. We conquer the work world, the play world, and that overshadows relationships. Coming back, I was down at our house in Brainerd yesterday coming back up Highway 6 there, and there was probably at one point forty-four 40 four-wheelers that were on the side of the road, dust and stuff, and just going right by us, over 4 wheel after four-wheeler, in the ditch going. And do you know how many of the percentage was of men versus women? It was about 20 to 1. They were working hard at playing yesterday. See, re- men know that relationships are more difficult than physical work. We know that intuitively, so we take the work route. It's easier, it's safer, it's less fear involved. What if my kids reject me? What if my wife doesn't cooperate with me? Let's just take the safe route, dive into work, play hard. See, while it was a gift, work was a gift, the fall twisted it. And we try to find meaning and purpose and value In work. I call this the great flip. For your notes, I put it on your notes there. This idea that when you think of after the fall or pre-fall, after the fall, when you think of where men find meaning and significance and purpose, there's a new order that took place. Number one is work. And number two, but it's not right next to it. I think it's... Number two... And then, in a whole bunch of other steps, number three is a relationship with Christ to the Father. That's after the fall. But you think about it this way, what was it like before the fall, before the consequences of sin? And here it is, I think we can go back and this is what it, when he's talking about walking and talking in the garden with Jesus, number one for Adam was he found first his significance and meaning in a relationship with Christ and the Father, number one. Number two was Eve, his wife. And number three was the work of taking care of the garden. It got flipped over. Do we catch what happened at the fall? So let me ask you a question. Looking to break chains here. I'll put it on the screen. Do you believe or have you ever considered, man, man, this is for you, the possibility that meaning and purpose in this world can actually come from a heart-to-heart bond, an actual relationship with Christ. Not working for Christ, a relationship with him, with the Father. See, do you believe that relationships can have more meaning than that which you work at and that which you play at? See, this is about beginning to foster relationship with the one who loves us actually the most, our Heavenly Father. That idea, good, good Father, the song that we sung there. Do we believe that he actually wants a dynamic relationship with us? in such a way where it's actually meaningful and satisfying. So you know what happens when that begins to take place and even where the relationship with our spouse is meaningful? Work becomes third. Third on the totem pole. Matter of fact, work switches in a way that all of a sudden work is, yeah, does it supply our family needs? Absolutely. But then it goes beyond even that is that I'm going to take work and I'm going to help others at work and introduce them into a relationship with Christ. That's more meaningful than their work. Do we catch this? Now, I've got to point out one nuance here. I forgot to say this in the first service. There's a nuance here that I don't think we quite realize in that this is taking place that dads pass on the attitude of work and success onto their daughters as well as their sons. The sin of finding meaning in work is splashing over to young women who are learning that success in work is more important than meaningful relationships as well. It is at the heart of the feminist movement that a, ma- that a woman can work and succeed in a man's world. We can find meaning and succeed, and that's where life is found. And you go, no, no. But as we pause and you go, okay, where did we learn this generational stuff? Let me throw a question on the screen for you. When you think back, did your father first define himself by his work, his role, what he did? Or did he define himself as a husband of a wife, a deep love relationship with another woman, or a, a father? Who loved his kids, and that my dad was a dad. I, I can't say that about my dad. He was a nice guy again, but he was defined even as a passive man. He was a carpenter, he built roads at one time, he worked for the township. But would I describe him first as a, as a husband and a father? And the answer is no. But how do we switch it? How do we stop that cycle? How do we break it? What if we're stuck there and that's where our source of meaning is found? How do we switch the roles around? Some of you are going, I don't have no idea. Let me give you some options here this morning. Maybe some things for you just to start that journey and wrestle with it deeply. Now, some of you are just going, ah, I'm out of here. See, so you can walk out of this room, but I would encourage you, humility is the starting point. Put away the pride. Listen and understand what Genesis 3, how it applies to us. It first starts with humility, but in that, you may have to do some intentional work. Here's some options. On your sheets there, you notice that at the end there, I listed a bunch of resources. The first one is called Men of Courage. It's a book. It used to be called The Silence of Adam. This is a reprint. But it's, it, it probably made more impact on my manhood than any book I've read. And it pushes you. I've read it probably eight or nine times over the years. We have a series called Men's 33 Series. It's 36 video sessions. And to just to force yourself to go through and ponder these things. Maybe you want to get a group of guys and begin to do that and create a DNA group where three or four of you are getting together. There's a book called The Heart of a Father I read. Great book by Ken Canfield. And just really wider principles. We're just touching the surface here today. Always Daddy's Girl is a book that I read by Norm Wright. It speaks to the father's relationship with their daughters. I learned more in that one and it changed some things dynamically what I had to do with my daughter. Finding out that my daughter's femininity is determined by me as a dad. It was like, you're kidding. What a son needs from his dad. I haven't read that one, but someone recommended it by O'Donnell. I, I page through it real quickly, it looks really solid. If you want to look at a parenting book, How to Really Love Your Child by Ross Campbell, it doesn't speak to behavior. It means, for dads, what does it mean to go after the heart of your children? It's a great book for that. And if you really want to dig deeper into this idea of your identity and your purpose and meaning in life, here's another option, Birthright by David Needham. It's going to be a lot heavier, very theological in basis, very biblical, but it talks about our relationship with God as father and what really, what's our birthright? What does it mean for him to be father to us? How, what's our identity all about? I'd encourage you to try it. Uh, I got a couple guys going through it and, and it's making a difference in their lives. But maybe you want to do one other thing here. Maybe you want just, to just get a little brave and do this. Be a part of a discussion group out at the Welcome Center out there, um, I, I would be willing to just join some guys, get together for a couple hours, and let's just talk about it. Let's just wrestle with it. With no agenda, just going, here's some things, what do you guys think? And I don't don't want those groups to be large, but if you're willing to do that, sign up there. Uh, Deanna will be out there afterward, and she can point it to the the sheet there where we can maybe be a part of it. I got a date set, and if that works for you, jump in on it. Maybe there's some other, other things that you need to do here. How about one of them like this? Begin to have a discussion with your father. Even if he's older, I wish I would have known some of this stuff before my dad had Alzheimer's and he he died pretty young. I I wish I could have gone back to him and had the discussion with him. Even a question like this, Dad, what do you wish that your dad would have communicated to you in the spiritual world? How about knocking on your dad's heart if you're a daughter or son and go, Dad, tell me about your dad, your mom. And and begin a process of understanding where the roots were being put into your father's life, your life. Now I realize many parents are dead. But maybe it's talking to a mom and asking questions in that area. Maybe you need to have really an act of humility and go to your kids and ask the question and say, how do you see me? Am I spiritually passive? Would you view me as that? Would you be willing to begin a dialogue with them? Let them actually hold up a mirror to your life and go, what am I seeing? Ask some questions, open the door. Maybe you need to have a discussion with your wife, your husband. Would you be willing to have that dialogue about the spiritual world? You know, if you're single here and even if you're not a father and you're a guy here, here's what I, this, prepare to become a spiritual father for somebody else. See, what does that look like? As Learn to communicate some of this and actually give it away to somebody else's life. But maybe there's one last one I would throw you that, maybe the most critical one would be to pull out this book and become more regular in it. And begin the process of building a relationship with the Son and the Father through the Holy Spirit. And here's the suggestion for you: as you dig out your Bibles, don't read it for content. Stay away from the content for a while. Yes, there's things to learn about it and lots of things, but here's what a here's the here read it this way, Father would you reveal to me a relationship through my reading today? Just reveal yourself to me. That would build on my relationship with you. Show yourself in this book to me. I I think this is the greatest need probably to begin the journey is for us to go, that we can actually have a relationship with the creator of the universe and he wants to relate to us day by day, moment by moment, And it's not just to perform for him, it's not to gain significance, but it's for us to know that we are loved by him and that he actually wants a relationship with us and that we learn to trust him because he is a good, good father. We need to let this speak to our lives in profound ways. Two cycles, passivity, work, where do we find meaning? Are we going to let the Holy Spirit change us from the inside out? Don't wait. Go for it. You can do it. Let's stand and pray.